are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. David Guzik, and if you've tuned in for our normal uh, every Thursday afternoon at 12 noon Pacific time, if you've tuned in for our question and answer, you may be wondering if you've come to the right place. Well, let me tell you, you have come to the right place. It's just that I'm not in the normal place. I am not in Santa Barbara, California at my home. I'm traveling. I was on the East Coast for a few days, and on the way back, I've stopped in Tennessee to see my son. So right now, I am parked at a city park in Camden, Tennessee, and I am here to do our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. I did not want to miss this question and answer time, especially uh, just to say and to welcome our TWR360 Transworld Radio audience who is joining us uh, through their portal on the TWR360 website. It's a great ministry that, of course, extends the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God around the world, originally in shortwave radio, Transworld Radio, but then also on their marvelous web presence now as well. We're starting today with a lead question from a man named Gideon, who's part of our TWR360 audience. Gideon's question was this, what is the biblical interpretation of Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14? And he says, wait to hear from you soon. Well, Gideon, I just got your question a few days ago, and I thought this would be a perfect question for us to have for our lead question today for the Q&A. What is the biblical interpretation of Mark chapter 11, verses 12, 13, and 14? That is the famous incident where Jesus cursed the fig tree. And uh, let me read to you those verses again. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, we read this. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. When Jesus said to it, let no, in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, now, this is a very interesting uh, passage. Because first of all, I find great interest just in the simple phrase in verse 12, where it says, he was hungry. Doesn't this remind us in a very powerful and beautiful way that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had human needs and bodily, physically needs just like the rest of us? I am supposing that it would be possible for the God of all the universe to take on human flesh, yet uh, reserve for himself the ability to, um, you know, never get hungry. Um, never feel pain, uh, never be thirsty, on and on. But Jesus shared in our humanity. I, I find great significance just in that phrase, he was hungry. Now, Jesus saw a fig tree having leaves, and he went to go see if he would find something on it. Now, notice, it says there that he found nothing but leaves. The whole picture of this situation is that the tree was a picture of false advertising. And this is what I mean. 
these kind of fig trees that are present in Israel, and to this day, I remember asking a tour guide in Israel about this once, these particular tour guides, uh, oh, excuse me, these particular tour guides, I thought of a tour guide, these particular fig trees, they begin to show their fruit even before they show forth their leaves. Now, that's the important part. Even though it was not the season for figs, I want you to notice this fig tree had leaves, but no figs. And that's really the problem there. You could say that this fig tree was a picture of what we might call false advertising. It promised something because it had leaves. And again, ordinary with these particular type of fig trees. If there are leaves, there should be figs. This particular kind of fig tree, there were leaves, but no figs. Now, it wasn't that the fig tree didn't have figs, because if you notice in the text, it says it was not the season for figs. But Jesus cursed that fig trees. Now, again, I, I want to point out that there were many trees at that time that uh, had leaves, uh, but were not cursed. There were trees that had uh, leaves, but no fruit, but it wasn't their time to bear fruit. Uh, there, there were trees that had uh, figs, perhaps, but no leaves, and that was fine. But this particular tree especially said by the presence of its leaves, there are figs here, and there were not. So what was the response of Jesus in this? The response of Jesus was to say, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. See, here's the whole point. The tree was cursed for its pretense of leaves, not for its lack of fruit. Again, I, I want to stress for you, it was not the time when fruit should be born. But again, God is showing his displeasure, not so much with fig trees. He's showing something to us here. God is troubled with us when we have the appearance of fruit, but not the fruit itself. I think this is a very relevant thing for our day and age. We live, and perhaps I say this because I live in California, Southern California. Uh, as I said, right now, I'm not in California. I'm in Camden, Tennessee. But I live in California, and California is a very image-conscious culture. People are very conscious of the kind of image that they project, that they point out. And... Uh, it's not that we should have absolutely no concern for how we appear to others, but it shouldn't be the most important concern. We should be more concerned for the reality behind things than we are the particular um, image that we portray to others. And that was, in fact, the real tragedy behind this fig tree. I find it interesting that in all the miracles of Jesus, this was the only destructive miracle that he ever did. You know, the Old Testament has quite a few miracles, if you want to say, of destruction, where God did uh, remarkable supernatural things. But the purpose of doing those remarkable supernatural things was that it destroyed other people. It didn't help them. This is the only time in the New Testament where we see a destructive miracle. And praise the Lord. Jesus did not focus that destructive miracle against people, but against a tree. Um, but the lesson we need to learn from this is very important. 
Again, we're talking about uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 12, 13, and 14, where Jesus cursed the fig tree. Jesus doesn't approve of it when there is a profession of faith without the reality of faith. Jesus doesn't approve of it when there is the talk of a believer without the walk of a believer. And this is a very important principle for us to keep in mind. Something that comes to us uh, just right in the day-to-day and something we need to be mindful of. So Gideon, thank you from our TWR audience that you were able to submit this question. Uh, Thank you for joining in today. I I hope that uh, that answer made some sense to you. And now I wanna take a look at some of the questions that have come in through our moderator, Devin. Folks, this is how it works. If you got a question or a comment, um, make the question or comment. I know Devin always appreciates it when you tell him where you're from, because we just like hearing where our audience is from. But uh, if you have a question or comment, put it in the side chat and our moderator, Devin, will collect them. He's looking for the questions that will be either connected to the topic that we've uh, started with today or questions that will have uh, an, a, you know, kind of an interest to a broad audience. And uh, so he's prioritizing those questions. And the first one I get uh, from Jessica today says this. Could you share your thoughts on the and fasting part of Mark chapter 9, verse 29? I found myself in a rabbit hole on the matter. And here's Mark chapter 9, verse 29 in the New King James Version. It says, so he said to them, meaning Jesus. So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Uh, This is a very interesting um, comment of Jesus. The idea that fasting is a resource of spiritual power along the same lines as prayer. And we all understand that prayer gives to us some sort of resource of spiritual power. But fasting also does that. And I think the thing that we need to come keep in mind here is that there is great value in putting away other interests, other distractions, anything that might, um, you know, take up our energy, or interest, other than seeking the Lord and pleading for things that are in great need. And those things have a great spiritual power to them. That's why Jesus said, this particular kind, this demon that was being dealt with, this comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, I do want to acknowledge that at least in the Mark text, uh, there are some manuscripts that don't include and fasting. Uh, but again, we, we have other gospels that kind of give the same thought, uh, m- even if you want to dispute whether or not it's within this particular verse. Now, Jessica, I just want you to be aware of the idea that There is true spiritual power in fasting. And and don't get it wrong. The power that comes to us spiritually from fasting does not come because we earn something because of our sacrifice. There have been some very strange Christian groups through the centuries that have believed that um, the more we afflict ourselves the more pleasing we can be to God and we can, uh, you know, earn uh, favor before him. So in past generations, Christians have 
worn, very rough, uncomfortable clothing. They would call that a hair shirt. Um, Christians have slept on deliberately rough, uncomfortable, maybe even painful beds to afflict themselves. They've slept on hard, cold floors. They've done all kinds of things to themselves to afflict themselves. And they've done it often with a mentality that says, my pain will earn an answer before God. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous way to think. Because we don't fast, we don't practice self-denial with the sense that we will twist God's arm and get what we want. We do it because we want to share God's heart for something and even afflict ourselves with something that we believe afflicts God in some way. Now, I'm not trying to imply that human beings can afflict themselves in the same way that God uh, is concerned or, or, or shows his care for something. But we're just trying to align our heart and actions for God. Now, there is great value in fasting beyond that. But there is value in fasting specifically along those lines. And it, it is a demonstration and an access of what we would just call true spiritual power. And it's something that is often neglected in the church today. I think it's indisputable that Christians should be fasting more. I mean, this is just something that we as believers should and can be doing more and more. So I hope that makes some sense to you there, Jessica. Let me go on to the next question that's come in off of our side chat from Amiga. Um, says, the book of Hebrews video, uh, Jesus, our great shepherd, Hebrews chapter 13. Why does it say in Hebrews 13, 20 again? Okay, so let me read to you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace that brought again the dead from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he died once for us, not twice. So why does it say again? Um, Amiga, that's a good question, but I think the misunderstanding has to do with simply the English phrasing of that particular question. When we read it there, we simply, you know, can read into that, oh, well, Jesus was resurrected again, where really the sense is he was brought to life again. Not that he was resurrected again, but brought to life again. In the original text of the Greek New Testament, and I say this not because I myself am a Greek expert, but from the commentaries I've read, they, they've raised no concern over this. It's just a simple way that is a more awkward phrasing when it gets translated into English. It just simply means that Jesus came again to life, not that Jesus died twice and had to be resurrected twice. Um, Translation from one language to another is always imperfect. If you're going to translate any amount of text, there's going to be things in the vocabulary. There's going to be things in the grammar that aren't exactly expressed from one to the other. And I think that this is one of those cases. So I, I would just simply say to you that uh, when it says again there, the thought in mind is not Jesus being resurrected again as if he died twice and had to be resurrected twice but it's Jesus coming to life again through the resurrection. And any awkwardness that's there in the phrasing is really just down to the limitations of translation from one language to another. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Amiga. 
Let me go on to the next question from uh, TJ, who says this. Where are people getting the idea of mortal sin? Aren't all sins forgiven once we come to Jesus? Is mortal sin biblical? You know, that's a very interesting question, TJ, because the idea of separating sins between mortal sins and what we might call, uh, what in theological circles are called, venial sins, which just kind of means lesser sins. You, you could say dividing uh, sin into worse sins and not as bad sins. Um, that is not a distinction that I believe that the Bible makes. That's a distinction that's made in theology that is not made in the scriptures. You could say, scripturally speaking, now, Again, biblically speaking, you could look at this from many different angles. So let me just give you one angle to look at this. There is one aspect of the sin situation that you could look uh, at biblically and say, all sin is mortal sin. I mean, you, you know what the word mortal means. The word mortal simply means deadly, a sin that brings death and unrepented sin, sin that is not dealt with by Jesus at the cross. All sin can bring us eternal death. So there's a sense in which all sin is deadly. But theologians have wanted to make the distinction that all sins aren't equal in their severity. Now, that's true. All sin does not have the same consequence. Um, the sin of saying an unkind word is not as serious in its consequence as the sin of stabbing somebody with a knife. So sins have different consequences and can be viewed as worse or better in that light. But the real theology of the mortal sin goes something like this, that once a person is baptized, if they commit a mortal sin, then they are going to hell or in great danger of hell. And if you were to go to your death with an unconfessed mortal sin, you'd go to hell. Now, again, I don't see that distinction made in the Bible, but it's a distinction that's made by theology. So, TJ, I would say, where are people getting this distinction? They're getting it from theological systems, not necessarily from the Bible. And uh, I think we need to be careful with any theological system. Uh, I am much more um, focused upon my Bible, if I could say that, than I am any particular system of theology. Now, I'm not trying to put down systems of theology. I just think that they have definite limitations and limitations that we should be very aware of and cautious of. And, and then your other thing, um, yes, uh, Jesus is able to forgive all sin. It's not as if there's a category of sins that's too difficult for Jesus to forgive. Um, he is rich in his love and forgiveness. All right, let me pause before I go on to the next question and just say, if you're joining us here on this uh, Thursday afternoon, I know that there's other people who watch this afterwards. Uh, there are, you know, repeat audience or not present at the moment audience. Um, you're wondering, well, how come it looks so different? I'll tell you what, because I am sitting in a truck in Camden, Tennessee. I am not in Santa Barbara, California. 
because uh, my travels have taken me here and I did not want to miss this Thursday afternoon Q&A. So I had a great cell signal um, in this particular part of the uh, of the town. So I decided to park my truck. It's kind of hot outside, so I thought it'd be more comfortable doing it on the inside. And I'm very glad that I can be here with you and that you can be here with me. The whole pattern for this is that you write your questions in the side chat. And again, our moderator, Devin, organizes the question and passes on them on to me as many as we can take at a particular time. Um, let me go on to the next question that comes from uh, Miss Italia, I think. Miss Italia, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, just ask, hey, David, what's your hobby? Oh, my, I have a few hobbies. Uh, my wife and I, uh, one hobby we really enjoy is going to the beach and looking for treasure on the beach. Uh, my wife, Ingalil, is quite a treasure hunter. And I suppose I've caught some of that bug from her. And we mostly look for sea glass, uh, but we'll also look for anything else that catches our eye that's something of a treasure. Uh, that's a great thing that we really enjoy doing. Uh, just going out and doing things and doing things around the house with my wife, it's something of a hobby. Uh, but I also enjoy working on old cars. And I've got a couple older cars that I'm working on, and I enjoy that a great deal. It's really fun, and uh, it's just a fun thing to do. So those are a few things that I do for hobbies. Of course, there's also some sports that I like to do, athletic things. Um, but, you know, you didn't ask so much about sports, so I'll give you those particular hobbies. So thank you for that, uh, uh Audra asks this question. Why did Jesus say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Syrophoenician woman, when he said he was sent to the preach to the Gentiles also? Uh, Audra, I'm not aware of any particular, excuse me while I take a drink of water. I'm not aware of any particular verse where Jesus says that he was sent to preach to the Gentiles. Now, later on in the book of Acts, Jesus gave a very specific command to his disciples that they were commanded to make disciples, meaning preaching the gospel, training people in the tradition of faith, leading people in obedience to God. They were called to make disciples all over the earth to every tribe, language, and, and nation. So uh, Jesus gave that specific uh, call to his disciples, but I'm not aware of any place where Jesus specifically said of his own work that he was sent to preach to the Gentiles as well. Jesus focused his ministry, as he said to the Syrophoenician woman, to the lost sheep of Israel. That was the focus of his ministry. He did do ministry, Outside of that and beyond that, on rare occasions, uh, for example, with uh, a centurion that Jesus spoke to. This is another notable example with a Syrophoenician woman. But overall, uh, the work of Jesus was to the house of Israel. What we would say again, were the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, Jesus wanted to do that along the pattern, I believe, that Paul later expressed that the gospel was to come to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. 
Now, from the very beginning, God had a great interest in reaching both Jew and Gentile. But in his plan, he ordained that the gospel go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So uh, I think that's a very, very uh, important aspect to take from that. Um, let me continue on. Um, Christana asks, is deception or lying ever biblically acceptable, like in warfare or self-defense? Um, Christana, you're asking a difficult ethical question. And I think that we would say that according to biblical ethics, there are times when there are two options in front of us and either one of them is sinful. And lying uh, would be the less sinful of the two. Now, I, I know there's something that makes us, makes me very uncomfortable in saying those words. We hear those words and we kind of act like, oh no, we're gonna give excuse to people for lying. Look out, liar, liar, pants on fire all the time. Now people are just gonna lie and excuse it. And let's be honest, people do that. People do lie and excuse it all the time under that premise, under the thinking that, well, um, I had to because of this or that or the other thing. It is true that this is an excuse that is often taken in a way that's not valid. And the taking of that excuse is a sin on top of their sin of lying. But I do think that there are ethical situations where a lie would be the less sinful option. And you mentioned here um, in warfare or self-defense, uh, say, for example, um, if somebody were to be hiding persecuted people, and uh, the police or the authorities come in and demand to know where these are. Um, lying might be the preferable option there uh, compared to telling the truth. So these issues are complicated. And it's true, as we make these statements, we believe that, um, man, this is difficult because some people are going to use this as an excuse, as a justification of their own lying. Now, just so you can say, that's true. People will. But it's, um, it's on them. You know, God knows when we use a lame excuse or justification of our sin. You might fool people. You might deceive them or, or put them in a situation where they know what you're doing is wrong, but they feel like they can't say anything against it. That may very well happen, but you cannot fool God. And uh, God sees, God knows. Okay, let me continue on. Thank you for that question, Kristana. Audra asks another question. It uh, says, does Job 4.18 suggest that angels sin? How can they be in the presence of God? Uh, it says here in verse 18 of Job chapter 4. If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error. Well, I think it's interesting here, Audra. First of all, we would say 
that the statement in Job chapter 4, verse 18, does not demand the idea that God finds sin or error in the angels. And we say that simply because it's phrased in the if. It's just saying if. It's raising it as a hypothetical. Now, someone could say, well, it suggests the idea that angels might sin. Well, fair enough. But, but it does not categorically say is that um, it is uh, the, uh, the fact of angels sinning. Now, so there's that. The, the verse just simply does not demand the idea that angels sin. But number two, we do have indication in the scriptures. Now, I need to be a little bit careful here because the evidence is not as clear scripturally as we might wish. In other words, there's just not enough biblical data to say some of the things I'm saying with absolute certainty. But it seems as if what we call today demonic spirits were at one time angelic spirits. And you would say that they still are in their nature angels, but that they are angelic spirits um, who sinned, who fell. Okay, so if that's the case, uh, then angels were at one time capable of sin. So if that's true, and we believe that is, I mean, most people believe this, I think, then uh, here we see that uh, it's just the idea that um, angels were at one time capable of sin, but then they lost that capability uh, to sin, even as that'll be true of human beings. But we believe that when a person goes to heaven, that they will no longer be capable of sin. Our time of sin, our time of choosing is right now. It, it won't be in the world beyond. Now, what we need to understand is that the same was probably true of angelic beings. Angelic beings, no doubt, had at one time a time for choosing, but that time of choosing has ended for them. So uh, Job could be raising a pure hypothetical there. That's possible. Job could also be speaking about um, a past time when angels could sin and that that ability is no longer left up to them. I suppose it's possible that um, it could be that angels could sin and we're just told nothing of it. I suppose that's a, a possibility as well. Okay, let me continue on here with a question from Donald. Donald says, can people be under a curse or become under a curse today? Uh, Donald, that's a very interesting question. Uh, the way that most people speak about curses I think is totally superstitious and has no biblical basis whatsoever. However, God does speak of cursing some people. So I believe that there are people who are, in a sense, under a curse from God because they are not repentant. They have not asked God for forgiveness of their particular sins. 
So um, there's that aspect to it, which I think is very interesting that it is possible for God to curse people. Of course, the greatest example of this is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, where as part of the Mosaic law given to Israel, um, we see that, um, again, part of the Mosaic law given to Israel, God also gave them as part of the law, the dynamic of blessing and cursing, where he promised to bless an obedient Israel, and he promised to curse a disobedient Israel. And in that sense, in regard to the law of Moses, now the new covenant doesn't work this way, but the old covenant did. So I, I think that's the, the straightforward question there. So there is that aspect of a curse that comes from God. And there is power in the demonic realm. You could say that a demon-possessed person is cursed by Satan. Um, I, I don't know if... Um, you know, we, we don't know the extent and how it all works if someone were to sort of subject someone else to a curse. But we do know that there is real power in the demonic realm. Now, the important thing to realize is any power in the demonic realm is nowhere equal to the power of Jesus. And we say to everybody who might be possessed by a demon or harassed or hassled in any way, that there is power in Jesus Christ to overcome every demonic power. And we, we find rest in that. We rejoice in that. So that is a great source of peace. Christians do not to be fearful of curses. Because to have this great fear of curses is really a lack of confidence in Jesus and his protective power. So if someone is troubled that maybe they have been cursed or would be cursed, listen, you just take it to Jesus, find refuge in his truth, in his power, in his grace, and you'll find that you don't need to be um, upset or worried about the power of those um, curses at all. So um, again, I, I think it is possible for a person to be cursed. But there is no need for any Christian to live in fear of curses, certainly not curses from God, because for the believer, any potential curse was poured out upon the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was cursed on the cross so that believers would not be cursed. There's that. But then the other aspect is simply this, that um, whatever power there may be in the demonic realm regarding curses, which is something that I'm not going to pretend for a moment to be a uh, expert about at all. Um, but just to know from the limited things that um, I know, of course, in the Bible, and then from also from experience and such, we, we can say without reservation that there is far, far greater power in Jesus Christ. So no Christian needs to live in fear of curses. Okay, let me go on to the next question from uh, Jimmy Joe. Um, says, greeting, Pastor Dave. My question is, God doesn't dwell around sin and is ultimately pure. Why did he allow Satan to come into his presence, according to the book of Job? Yet Satan is full of sin. 
Jimmy, uh, that's a great question. And the idea is something like this. God is so holy and so pure that he cannot allow anything sinful in his presence. Um, therefore, it's very important to realize that this is why um, uh, people who are sinful can't go to heaven. They'll never become in the presence of God. Look, uh, Jimmy, I just have to tell you that that um, question is based on something of a misunderstanding. Um, God can be in the presence of sin. Let me give you the greatest example of this. Jesus Christ is fully God. I mean, this is what the Bible says again and again and again, that Jesus Christ is God. Now, Jesus Christ being God, he was around sinful people every moment of the day, except when he was all by himself. Anytime Jesus was around anybody, he was around a sinful person. So the idea that God cannot allow sin in his presence is really something that is much more often said by preachers than it is indicated to us by the word of God itself. And I think it's important that we always just take a step back and say, okay, what is biblical and what do... Now, the, the preachers who say that, and listen, I, I may well have said that in my preaching at some time. They, they mean well. What, what they're trying to get at is the idea that God truly is holy and that we need to be made right before him. But nowhere do we have this picture of God that the holiness and spotless, sinless character of God means that he can have nothing sinful in his presence. Um, we just don't have that indicated for us biblically. So again, uh, I hope that helps you there, Jimmy. Let me go on to the next question from Lupi. Lupi says, after reading Second uh, Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 25, my first thought was, how could David stay this when he sinned so badly? Uh, how was he a man after God's own heart? Um, I would have to look up that passage here. You said it's Second Samuel. Let me look this up here. Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter two, verses one through twenty-five. Um, David is going up to Ishbosheth, king of Israel, war in Israel. There, I'm just scanning over the verses here now. Okay, I, Lupe, I just have to say I'm not really clear. Um, on this, or maybe you're talking about chapter 22, where David speaks of his righteousness before the Lord. Um, again, let me go to that. I'm sorry that it's taking me so long here. I don't have my normal resources right in front of me. Um, Lord is my rock, my fortress, when the waves of death surrounded me. It's not about God's rescue of him. Uh, listen, Lupe, I if you're talking about 2 Samuel chapter 22 and that great psalm of David where he praised God and he says things like this, I was also blameless before him as for statutes, I did not depart from them. Um, there are two 
ideas at play here. There are some people who believe that um, this was a psalm that David actually composed earlier in his reign. If you notice the very beginning to this, uh, it's also repeated in Psalm 18. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So there are people who believe that this psalm comes from a happier time in David's life, and it's just inserted here towards the end of the book of 2 Samuel uh, for the sake of the chronology of it all. So that may very well be that really what we're just talking about is a psalm that comes from something earlier in David's life. Um, so that's a possibility. But again, let's just remember that David was um, a man after God's own heart, even after his sin. Now, that, that's not because he sinned. There are people who fall from grace. They fall away from the Lord. And there are other people who fall, if you want to call, into the grace of God. They sin, they confess, they repent, and the end effect is that it draws them closer to the Lord than ever. Now, please understand, we are never recommending that someone use grievous sin in their life as a way to draw closer to the Lord. That would be a twisting of what the Bible says. But nevertheless, we can say that this principle has been true, that um, those who have recognized that they've been forgiven much do, in fact, love much, and they truly love the Lord. So uh, this is what we see at work here in this particular passage. So um, I hope that helps you there, Lupe. Um, so again, two answers. First of all, David didn't lose his status because he truly was a man who repented and was restored before God. Um, not that he didn't pay a price for his sin. He certainly paid a price, but there was a beautiful restoration. Secondly, it's possible or maybe even likely that David wrote this psalm from before uh, his time, uh, after his uh, grievous sin. Okay, let me continue on here. A question from Leo it says, uh, what Bible would you recommend other than the King James Version? Hey, Leo, that's a good question. Look, I, I believe that we live in a wonderful time when there are several good Bible translations out there. So I'm going to recommend to you um, the new King James. That's my go-to Bible translation. It is the Bible translation that I have my entire Bible commentary work on. Uh, if you want to say that these uh, Bible commentary works um, have been based on the New King James Version, and I am just very pleased just to keep that. I, it's To me, there are several good Bible translations out there, but the New King James Version is the one that I prefer. Um, the ESV is very good. Um, Again, I prefer the New King James, but the ESV is obviously a good translation. The New American Standard Bible is a good translation. That's another great translation. If somebody's looking for a paraphrase, and this is a translation, not so much a paraphrase, but let's just say a, a simpler worded Bible, maybe something for someone who's um, you know, at a lower reading level or just appreciates a simpler stating of things, 
The New Living Translation, I think, is a good Bible translation. So uh, I would say um, translations that are like the New King James, I would recommend uh, the New American Standard or the um, ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, but if you're looking for a Bible translation that's good, yet just simply phrased simpler, I would say something to uh, promote you to the New Living Translation. Um, let me say something before I go on to the next question from Anahui. We have um, many questions today, or comments, I should say, uh, from people uh, who seem a little bit hostile, a little bit antagonistic. Um, maybe they come from some of that um, Hebrew-Israelite tradition. Uh, I know people like that are very often active on such videos as ours. Let me say something to you. Um, first of all, um, we love you in the name of Jesus. We think that you're misguided. Uh, we think that um, there is no reason to believe that uh, modern uh, races identify with ancient Israelites other than Jewish people of this day. We, um, we just really think that you are misguided and you need to turn from your misguided ways. It's really strange and a little bit sad to us that you'd come on our channel to disrupt things. But let me just say, um, Jesus Christ is a great savior. And Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the savior of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there's no reason for anybody to look to any savior other than Jesus Christ. So um, people need to talk less about um, Edomites and Esau and uh, this racial identification, a modern racial identification uh, of the ancient Jews and this and that, they need to talk a lot less about that and they need to talk about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, but let me tell you something, Jesus Christ is also the judge of all the world. And when you reject Jesus, and when you deny the fact that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, you are sealing your own condemnation. It's sad, but don't ever forget that the sinless man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life on the cross to uh, bring salvation, to, to have that wonderful and exalted title, Savior of the world. That's who the salvation of Jesus is extended to. You reject that Jesus, there is no salvation in any other place in any other person. You're sealing your own fate. So I regard it as a bit of a badge of honor to be, um, this is in the smallest of ways from the comments, to be harassed in the smallest of ways. I, I'm not trying to over-dramatize this. Um, it's a nuisance, really. But I, I count it as a badge of honor to have nuisance from those who are opponents from Jesus Christ. 
you need to repent of those sins. And you need to turn your attention, your focus to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. There is salvation found in none other. All right, let me turn to the question from uh, Anahui. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Please forgive me if I'm wrong. I wish we were sitting across a table from each other. You could tell me how to more properly pronounce your name. But um, here, Anahui says, Hi, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 3 in the New King James says, Even the sea monsters, they offer their breasts to nurse their young. The NSAB says the jackals offer their breasts, they nurse their young. Why the difference? Um, uh, anyway, I, I would have to say without, you know, getting out my resource materials, without looking it up here, I, I don't know offhand if I say anything about this in my Bible commentary. I wouldn't be surprised if I do. But obviously, there are some Hebrew words referring to animals, referring to trees, that there is just dispute as to what they mean. There's dispute one way or the other. And so we don't have to be troubled by this. Um, it's obviously referring to some kind of mammal, um, whether that's a sea mammal or whether it's a land animal, a jackal. Um, so these are just things that have to do with just translation. I, I would have to get in to my own uh, resources and uh, study materials to give you a more coherent answer of that. But from time to time, you'll just find that to be the case. Uh, if I remember correctly, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so if I'm not correct on some of the animals, forgive me, but I, I'm recalling some place in the Old Testament where some translations think it's a jackal and other translations think it's an owl or something like that. Again, there are some places where it's just a little bit difficult to take an ancient Hebrew word and to know exactly the animal that it's being spoken of. Um, we try to do the best we can through context, but we're not always able to do that. All right, we got about 10 minutes more here. Um, let me just say this. Uh, if you're joining us here today, welcome. You're wondering why it looks so different. Why, first of all, I'm in... Uh, portrait mode and not horizontal mode, why well, I don't have a library of books behind me. It's because I'm not at home in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, I am in uh, the city of Camden, city, town. It's not very big. Camden, Tennessee. Uh, I'm out traveling and I did not want to miss today's live question and answer program. Um, I hope the technology is working okay. I kind of feel that we're doing this sort of on a wing and a prayer, uh, but so far, so good, I suppose. Uh, so let me deal with just another question or two here in the last few minutes that we have. Here's a question from uh, Teresa, who says, um, Hello, I want to know who should not take communion. At times, our pastor tells us God wants us all to take it. Then at other times, some should not be doing it. I am so very confused. Okay, Teresa, um, let me speak to you about this. Um, I, I feel a little bit awkward about this because um, I, I feel awkward, you know, sort of contradicting what your pastor says. My, my goal here is not to undermine your confidence in your pastor. It's not to say your pastor's wrong. Maybe if your pastor and I were sitting together, we'd, well, I didn't really mean this, or maybe I more meant that. 
I don't know. So I, I always feel uncomfortable when somebody asks me about something that their pastor said, because I, I, I really want to respect a pastor's authority, even recognizing that pastors can be wrong about things. So without getting too much into that, let me just sort of go on to the next question or the next idea that you have here. You want to know um, that should a person uh, not take communion if uh, there's sin in their life. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the danger of taking communion unworthily. But it's very interesting. If you look at the context of what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and please read it. Um, you can go to my commentary on it. You, you can do your own research, but we're talking about 1 Corinthians 11 taking communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy way. What Paul is speaking about there in context is taking it in an unworthy manner. In other words, they took communion in a church setting where they were being very rude and inconsiderate of one another and really offending one another at the very communion service. In the early church, communion was often held, not always, but often, as part of what we would call today, at least in the United States, a potluck supper, where people bring food and everybody shares food and people share what they have. That was a common way, not the exclusive way, but a common way that communion was received in the early church. The love feast or the agape feast is what they would call it. Well, Paul says that there was very selfish conduct going on at those potluck suppers. You know, somebody taking huge portions of the best food for themselves and seeing that other people went hungry. He even speaks that there was drunkenness at some of these Corinthian agape feasts or, or potluck meals, whatever you would want to call it. Paul says, when you take communion in the context of that kind of sin against one another and selfishness against in the presence of others, that is receiving communion in an unworthy manner and don't do it. I don't think Paul was saying that if you're a sinner, don't take communion with this idea. If you're willing to bring that sin to the cross, you know, let's remember what communion signifies. It signifies the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus, which was given for sinners. If you are cherishing known sin in your heart, if you're not bringing it to the cross and under, so to speak, the blood of Jesus, then you might want to let those communion elements pass you by. But it's not because you've sinned so grievously that you can't be forgiven. No, that's not it at all. The issue is you have sinned and you won't bring that sin under the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which that communion supper is open and available to everyone who will receive it in a way that honors God. So that's really what I would say to you. And really, I, I think something that God wants us to receive deeply in our own heart. Um, so uh, I, I hope that's clear for you. Um, 
receiving communion in an unworthy manner is something we should never do, and that's a sin, a grievous sin. Receiving communion with unrepentant sin that you cherish, that's not good either. But receiving communion, no matter what the sin, if you'll bring it under the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who's poured out life and blood, that's a glorious thing. Okay, let me deal here with um, one more question from Jane. And again, I want to thank you for all the viewers today, especially our TWR360 audience. Um, it's quite a treat for me to be able to do this. And it makes me think, you know what? With the traveling that I do, maybe I can do this more often. If I can get a good cell, cell signal, they don't have to feel that if I'm not in my studio, I can still do these uh, uh, times with you together. So thank you for your time and uh, joining us today. Let me deal with one more question from uh, Jane. Says, can you recommend a book to learn a bit about the period between 400 BC and Christ's birth. Well, Jane, um, there are two books that I'm going to recommend to you because I think they would overlap a bit. Um, no, let me <laughs> let me recommend to you uh, three books. Three books. The first one is by uh, Norman Geisler, and I don't know the first name of the other co-author, uh, Nix Geisler and Nix called A General Introduction to the Bible. That'll give you information on that period between the two Testaments. So a general introduction to the Bible. But let me give you two other resources that I really appreciate. They're both by F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who is a great Bible commentator and also a uh, really a uh, outstanding historian. F.F. F. Bruce wrote two books, one on Old Testament history called Israel and the Nations, and another one on New Testament history. I believe it's called New Testament History. I believe that's what it's called. New Testament Times, New Testament History. Those two books by F.F. F. Bruce are excellent, excellent uh, books on New Testament history, Old Testament history, and it'll cover. The, the one will cover it after, the other cover it before, but dealing with that time between the two Testaments. So uh, before I uh, sign off, I want to say something to the moderator, Devin, before he closes it. Devin, if you could copy and paste into a document all of our questions that came in on the chat today, because I really like the questions that I wasn't able to get to. And if we have a record of the questions I wasn't able to get to, then uh, maybe I can deal with them in a subsequent question and answer time, either live or pre-recorded. But I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It's been a wonderful time together. And um, I, I uh, do want to uh, just say again, we want to preach Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. <laughs> That's what this YouTube channel and my work as a pastor and a Bible teacher is all focused on exalting and lifting up Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, Devin, for your moderating work. And if you can, uh, make a copy and put into a document all the chat that we weren't able to get to, because I always like seeing those questions we couldn't get to. I hope to get to them later. God bless you, everybody. And thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. 
For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.